Blog Talk Radio. On today's World Footprints Radio Show, Ireland Tourism CEO Nails Gibbons shares how visitors can enjoy Ireland's monastic ancient history. Those boats take people over. They can walk up uh, ancient rock formations up 600 steps to the very top and uh, engage, I think, in, and immerse themselves in some of Ireland's most ancient history. Photographer and storyteller Jay Selden uses black and white photos to illuminate the people who star in his photo journal, the Cubans, in a way seldom seen by many. Cuba is about the people, about their generosity, about their spirit, about their grace, about their closeness with family. On a recent trip to mid-Michigan, sports writer and travel journalist Bijan Bain discovered a new perspective on the Great Lakes State and its largest city, Detroit. It's great to hear just positive things and that the city has an association with something positive in general. Join us as we venture through Ireland, see Cuba in black and white, and show Michigan in a different light on World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. in the hour, we'll shine a destination spotlight on Argentina and Taiwan from the floor of the Adventure Travel Show. We will also share a travel journalist opinion about Detroit and mid-Michigan as a tourist destination. Bijan Bain will offer some insights into Detroit's revitalization, and he'll share a must-see attraction for the history enthusiast. Also coming up on World Footprints, photographer Jay Selden shares intimate views of everyday life on Cuba in his powerful photo book, The Cubans. Jay's photographs speak louder than any words can offer, and he will echo the voices of his Cuban subjects and convey what their photos are saying. But first, we have the pleasure of sitting down with Tourism Ireland CEO Nails Gibbons during his recent visit to Washington, D.C., Nails took us on a historical journey through the Emerald Isle and introduced some of Ireland's lesser-known stories. Ireland is an island which is steeped in thousands of years of history, uh, and we're very fortunate for a very small island to have three UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Uh, first of those is the Giant's Causeway, uh, an ancient formation of rock stones up in the north coast of Ireland. Um, second is Skellig Michael, or in the Irish language, Skellig Michael, which is an, an ancient island off the coast of County Kerry, where Augustinian monks uh, lived there around 600 AD. And then the third is what's called Newgrange, which is on the east coast of Ireland, a county called County Mead, uh, in the Irish language called Brunabonia. And that's a very ancient site, which goes back to the date of the pyramids, 5000 BC. So each of those sites has a particular story, um, all very interesting in their own way. In relation to Skelly McKeel, in a modern dimension, Star Wars was recently filmed there, but, I mean, it does go back to 600 AD when monks created beehive huts to live in, and those beehive huts are still there today. It's a very protected island, minded by the National Parks and Wildlife Service. I think responsible tourism is something that Ireland takes very seriously. Uh, only 150 people can enter onto the island every day through a little village called Port McGee on the... Uh, coast uh, of, of County Kerry and um, those boats take people over they can walk up uh, ancient rock formations up 600 steps to the very top and uh, engage I think in, and immerse themselves in some of Ireland's most ancient history uh, the monks moved off that island eventually moved on to the mainland, the weather was very very difficult but it's amazing the history that's been left there for people to explore and discover uh, today the second site, Newgrange, 
very, very special place. Um, this is uh, something that's as old as the pyramids of Egypt, created in 5000 BC uh, in Neolithic times. And there is an ancient tomb there. And on the winter solstice, on the 21st of December, uh, there's a passageway which the sun shines down and illuminates the chamber at Newgrange. The only day of the year that that happens is the 21st of December, which is remarkable that people could do that in 5000 BC. Um, we need all sorts of technology probably to do it now, uh, but people were able to do it back then. Um, the third one is the Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland on the north coast. Again, a spectacular site of basalt rocks. Uh, and great Irish legend about Finn McCool, um, who, who was on those rocks many, many years ago. Uh, and again, I think it comes back to Ireland and the stories that people tell and the folklore and legends. Uh, and those three particular sites uh, really are special in relation to what makes Ireland great as a tourism destination. They're not mass tourism sites. I mean, they limited the number of people that come in um, because they're managed by um, either the National Trust in Northern Ireland or the National Parks and Wildlife Service uh, in Ireland. And um, I think, though, they're very, very special, and it gives people a real taste of what Ireland has to offer. Now, are those three sites, uh, in addition to uh, a trail that I understand you have called the Ireland Ancient East? Well, Ireland's Ancient East, I suppose, is really um, a marketing brand to pull a lot of sites together in the east coast of Ireland, of which Newgrange is the only UNESCO World Heritage Site there. Um, there are many other famous sites in Ireland's Ancient East as well. You can go to Clonmac Noise, where there are round towers uh, where monks would have lived, going back to you know between 6 and 800 AD. Um, I mean, there were a lot of invasions in Ireland over the last thousand years. We had Vikings, we had the British, and they all left their mark. So if you went down to somewhere like Waterford, uh, you'll find a lot of ancient history from Viking settlements. Uh, and then, you know, if you go further in, uh, you'll find a lot of Anglo, uh, Anglo, Anglo-Irish Anglo uh, history from great houses that were built by the British when they uh, came into Ireland around that time in the plantations about 400 years ago. So Ireland Ancient East really pulls together a lot of themes uh, around those different strands of the Neolithic period, the Anglo-Irish period, the Anglo-Norman period, the Viking period. And it's great for people to be able to see all these things in one place. Now, how would a visitor see some of these parks? Because you mentioned that uh, they're very protected and entrances often limited. Well, the first thing to do is get your information on Ireland.com. Um, all your information needs in relation to going to Ireland, what parts you might like to see, are, are all on that. Um, in relation to some of those sites, they're run by the Office of Public Works. Uh, they have a website, and you can get a visitor pass for all the 65 sites that they run. That's a very easy way of doing it. Uh, Ireland is very accessible and easy to get around. So, first of all, you can get to Ireland from 12 gateways in the United States, which is a record this summer. There'll be uh, over 40,000 seats available every week. Hiring car is very easy. Lots of car hire companies available that you can book through when you're in America here to, uh, to, to go. And getting around is very easy. It's a fairly new motorway network, so you can travel from the east coast to the west coast of Ireland in about two hours, uh, which is quite good. But getting around, I think what's really good is when you get off the beaten track and, uh, you know, make sure you're prepared. There are apps that you can download that will guide you to wherever you want to go. Uh, We talked about Ireland's ancient east. I think on the west coast of Ireland is very special as well. The Wild Atlantic Way is a 1,500-mile journey all the way from Donegal, which is the very north tip of Ireland, around to Cork on the southern tip as well. And while I mentioned those UNESCO World Heritage Sites, those three sites, there are also other UNESCO landmarks. And one very special one is in County Clare, where there's what's called the Burren, uh, and also there's a Burren Geopark and the Loop Head Trail as well. Uh, and again, I think that area of responsible tourism is something that this area does particularly well. The flora and fauna is somewhere uh, in Ireland that you can only experience. Um, it's really majestic. The landscape is very, very special, um, something that's very attractive to our tourists as well. And that's something I recommend to people on the west coast of Ireland. Millions of people around the world can trace their family tree to Ireland, and many have traveled to the country to complete the story of their heritage. There are 70 million people around the world that 
that claim Irish ancestry and as you said in excess of 40 million people here in the United States alone and genealogy tourism is something that's growing uh, from day to day and what we find is that you know if you're trying to trace your family tree that the best thing to do is start the journey online and accumulate as much information as you can and in relation to Ireland the census records are now online and they're free from 1901 to 1911 uh, now, when you go back beyond that, um, there are parish records available from various churches uh, from about 1845, and then there are more limited records beyond that. So I think what people need to do is try and accumulate what they can online to find out where their ancestors maybe came from, what region. Uh, if you want to get very specific, then you need to take a trip to Ireland probably and engage a specialist service of a genealogy uh, person. And there are lots of services available, and you can find them online as well on Ireland.com. Uh, but it's an amazing journey. I've seen people who have come back from the United States and you know found the family homestead and touched the stone, you know, of the rock of what was the house of their ancestors that you know maybe from 200 years ago. Very emotional moment, really. It really is, you know. And uh, I know people who have come back and have managed to accumulate the farm that their parents owned 200 years ago as well in places like County Mayo. So very special to hear those stories. So what's really I think interesting about Ireland and what makes it unique is that all the records are not complete. Um, this is a journey of discovery to some extent, of which you can start online, but you have to finish back at home in Ireland. This is World Footprints Radio. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick with my wife, Tanya, and we are talking to Ireland Tourism CEO, Nails Gibbons, about Ireland's history, the millions of people who can trace their roots to Ireland, and the country's efforts to preserve its language heritage. The Irish language is the language that was spoken in Ireland by all people about 300 years ago uh, when Britain came to Ireland and the plantations, you know, back from the sort of 16 and 1700s onwards, uh, English became the main language. But Ireland has been preserved. Uh, it's, it's, the, it's compulsory language in schools for all children up to the age of 17, so everyone gets a basic grounding in the Irish language. But there are areas what we call Gaeltacht, this is the Irish language word for Irish-speaking area, and there are designated official Gaeltacht areas, particularly on the west coast of Ireland. You'll find them prevalent in places like County Donegal in the northwest and Galway in the west and Kerry in the southwest. But there are also some on the east coast of Ireland as well. And this is where Irish language is, the language of commerce. You know, it's a language that people use in their daily lives. Um, I think as well, you know, there's a, a sort of a, a, a re, re, renaissance really in relation to Irish culture as well, through things like river dance that has made people reconnect perhaps with their heritage more than in the past. So we're seeing more people learning the Irish language than ever before. Uh, we have kids, I have kids of my own who will go down to the Gaeltacht area and spend a three-week um, stint during the summer uh, learning the language, learning about Irish culture and that. And also Gaelic games as well um, through the GAA uh, are something that are growing in popularity. Gaelic football and hurling as well are part of that you know, immersive experience in terms of Irish sport, language and culture, and the language is a central part of that. I understand this year uh, Dublin is celebrating uh, it, the centennial of the uh, Easter Rising. What is the Easter Rising, or what was the Easter Rising? Gosh, uh, how long do I have to explain this one? This is a very, a very interesting story. Well, to, to understand the Easter Rising, you'd probably need to go back in, into Irish history much further and the cause for Irish independence, um, you know, which, which people have had several rebellions over the years, uh, none of which really had succeeded. And there was a Gaelic revival taking place in Ireland, you know, towards the end of the 19th century and into the early 20th century. Uh, and a lot of that culminated in a battle for home rule, what was known as home rule, independence from Britain. Uh, things got caught up in the First World War. Uh, home rule didn't get implemented as was, was, as was thought. Uh, and essentially a small number of people, seven people, signed um, signatories to a proclamation to declare an Irish Republic. 
Uh, there was a rebellion on Easter Monday uh, in Dublin. Um, a lot of Dublin got destroyed. It was very unpopular at the time because uh, there were a lot of Irish soldiers that were fighting in the First World War uh, for Britain. Um, but I think what turned the rebellion in, in favour of those people who did fight uh, was the fact that the rebel leaders got executed by the British. And um, what also happened was um, you know, events in terms of conscription of World War and there was eventually uh, an Irish independence movement and a civil war um, that resulted really in Irish independence around 1922. So the, the proclamation and the Easter Rising, which took place in 1916, was a seminal moment in Irish history. And people are reflecting now back on the last 100 years in terms of what's been achieved in terms of independence, uh, to achieve all the milestones that were been set out then. Um, but it's really also a big attempt to focus on what can the next 100 years bring, because Ireland is a very different place now than what it was then. Um, you know, when you look at um, sort of you know, levels of poverty, deprivation, um, you know, we don't experience that now. We've got a very educated workforce. Nine of the top ten tech companies in the world, you know, have their European headquarters in Ireland. And there's a very young, mobile workforce uh, that go abroad, that come home. And uh, as a place to visit, you know, as a tourism destination, Ireland is one of the top places to go in the world. So I suppose we face into the next 100 years with an air of confidence. But it's important as well to reflect on the successes and failures of the last 100 years too. Is there an attraction in Dublin that uh, honors the Easter Rising? Well, there's a huge number of uh, commemorations and celebrations going on throughout the whole course of 2016. Everything from schools programs to uh, on the ground, there'll be a new attraction in the, what's called the General Post Office, the GPO, where the rebellion mainly took place. Um, that'll be opening its stores next week, and it's called Witness History, and it's really a living project to describe what was happening at the time. It describes the impact on the people of Dublin. I've got a sneak preview of it. Very, very exciting. There's also a new attraction called Epic Ireland, which will be opening as well in the centre of Dublin. That tells the story of the Irish diaspora. Um, so many things to see and do and uh, for people who will be there around Easter weekend there will be a lot of activities and events as well um, so a very interesting year and again all the information on that available on Ireland.com. Ireland is also known as the Island of Saints and Scholars. Nails tells us what is behind this lesser known nickname. I'm not saying that we're all saints. <laughs> we have many scholars. Um, but, you know, it's a term that was given to Ireland, really, because there's been a learning tradition that's been going on for, for thousands of years in Ireland. Um, so if you even go to one of our top visitor attractions called Trinity College, uh, you'll find the Book of Kells there, written by monks in the 8th century. It's the most incredible piece of work, and it shows you the, the culture of learning that was in Ireland for, for many, many thousands of years. Uh, and some of the places that I mentioned already, um, like uh, Skellig Michael, uh, where, where monks were, were there back in 600 AD, and, and the fact that they were able to build those huts that I talked about as well, which have lasted, you know, the, the 1,400 years later, or 1,500 years later, uh, show that there's a real learning tradition in Ireland. So, you know, that learning culture has spread. I mean, when Irish, um, what's called the Flight of the Earls took place over 400 years ago when Britain invaded Ireland, um, there was a, a lot of learned people actually went off to Europe and founded colleges around the place in places like Louvain and Belgium also in Spain and in France, and um, so that learning tradition has now spread its wings into other countries around the world too. Another part of history that Ireland is keeping alive is their maritime history, including the building of the ill-fated Titanic. It's one of the amazing stories that we have to tell. I mean, Titanic was built, um, you know, back in 1912. It had a, we all know about the ill-fated voyage. The people in Belfast are quite funny because they'll tell you it was okay when it left Belfast. <laughs> And um, it's fantastic to see that, you know, for the 100th anniversary uh, that Northern Ireland was to produce what is really a global icon, 
which is now uh, about to welcome its three million visitors since it opened in 2012. So it's three million visitors in its fourth year. It's exceeding all expectations. It really does tell the story of Titanic uh, and the people who built it and all the stories uh, that go with that. And I'm really excited about it because it's part of the whole maritime story that's growing up in Belfast at the moment. They also have um, redeveloped the Nomadic, which is um, one of the tender ships which served the Titanic as well. And that's there to see too. HMS Caroline, which is a ship that fought in the Battle of Jutland, uh, is being restored. And that's going to open this year as well. So there's a whole maritime sort of you know experience around Belfast, of which Titanic is really the centre. But the visitor centre itself um, is a wonderful facility. Um, you can actually go there and even see the, the steps as well, which are an exact replica uh, of the actual steps that were on the Titanic too. So uh, a really top-class visitor attraction for anyone visiting Northern Ireland this year. Now, someone may guess because of your accent that you're a native of Ireland, and so I'll ask you, where do you go in Ireland? What parts of Ireland really feed you? Gosh, that's a difficult question, because if I answer that question, honestly, I'll have everyone saying, why didn't you mention my place? But my family would tend to holiday in the county called Wicklow uh, every year. It's very close to Dublin. It's called the Garden County, very easy to commute to. Um, it's known as the Garden County, literally, because, you know, you go around to all the most you know, stunning, beautiful gardens in the world, some very ancient uh, houses there, like Paris Court. There's some really good golf, if you're into that as well. Uh, it's right beside the coast, so the most stunning scenery uh, in relation to coastal views. But look, anywhere in Ireland is always good in relation to a holiday. And uh, I, I'd mentioned Ireland's ancient east, I mentioned the wild Atlantic way. And Northern Ireland as well, a summer that has really blossomed over the last number of years as a tourism destination. And we talked about Titanic already, and we talked about Giant's Causeway. But one project I'm very excited about in Northern Ireland is actually the Gobbins Cliff Walk, which was an ancient cliff walk set up in 1902 and fell into disrepair in the 1960s. But they spent over $10 million restoring that, and it's just opened this year. And again, it can cater for about 35,000 visitors a year, and it's going to be absolutely packed out because it's going to be so popular. But again, it's a stunning, dramatic cliff walk uh, on the northeast coast uh, of the island of Ireland. And uh, for anybody visiting there, uh, certainly I'd recommend that. To learn more about Ireland or to plan your visit to the Emerald Isle, visit this show page on worldfootprints.com for relevant links. In this destination spotlight, Eduardo Piva shines a light on Argentina from the Adventure Travel Show. We call Argentina the land of the sixth continent because, you know, it's a big country. You have a rainforest in the north and glaciers in the south. That is not easy to explain, but it's a, it's a huge country. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of uh, tourist destinations around the country, like in this, I guess I mentioned, in the south, we have the glaciers. In the Patagonia, it's a huge territory, Patagonia. And you have uh, in the, la- the island of Tierra del Fuego, you have the crosses to the Antarctica. Every year, depart to from Ushuaia. This is the uh, southern city on the wall, Ushuaia. It's, this is the end of the wall, you know. Uh, the, we have a lot of cruises to Antarctica, around 300 cruises depart from Ushuaia from October to, to March. Uh, to Antarctica. What is the cultural landscape of Argentina? We say the Argentinian came in from the uh, ships, you know, for, <laughs> because uh, we have a, like it's, it's in South, South of South America, and we have a, a not have a, a lot of uh, original people there. We have original people, but not a lot. And the people is coming from Europe, principally. 
uh, immigration are from Spain and Italy. The the, the two the two principals uh, immigration are, and then from UK, Germany, Poland, you know, for the Northern Europe. But it's it's, it's a recent uh, immigration. People are coming in the last century. Uh, we, we, we have a lot of immigration in Argentina. I have a, a, and also a very huge uh, Jewish community in Argentina, probably the second one uh, after New York and the, after the States. For a first-time visitor to Argentina, where would you tell them to go? The first destination in Argentina to visit is Buenos Aires because uh, it's a main gate, no? it's uh, you know, the, the entrance of the, of the country. The second destination in visiting is Iguazu Falls. Uh, it was a fall, probably is the, the uh, most important fall in the world. It's the biggest one. It's have a, in the same place 186 uh, fo- uh, uh, falls in the same place. It's a huge, it's a huge. Then Patagonia and Mendoza for the Malbec wine. Mendoza is not a huge province, but have more than a thousand wineries. The island of Cuba has been the forbidden fruit that many have desired to taste. Some have risked the threat of jail, and others have sent an arm and a leg to explore the land where time stands still. For photographer Jay Selden, one trip to Cuba was not enough. Initially, what drew me to Cuba was the fact that Cuba was a location that you just couldn't go to. You know, it was a place that was forbidden to travel to. So that kind of set me up to go there. And I went there with a group of artists for a big art enclave in Cuba in 2008. And that was the first time that I went there. And since I went there at that one time, I fell in love with the country and have been going back ever since. Why have you developed such an affinity for the island? First thing right off the bat is the people. Uh, the people are just a wonderful group of people. They're generous, they're loving, they're family-oriented. I, I just love that kind of appeal to me for as a photographer anyway. They, I hope that comes through in my photographs. I felt this warmth coming out of the people stopping me on the street, inviting me up to their home to have an espresso with them and let me explore their home and photograph them in their home. It was wonderful. And so what really inspired your photo book, The Cubans? What inspired me is a photographer. His name is Robert Frank, who did a book called The Americans in the 50s. Robert Frank today is about 92 years old. And I just happened to see him two weeks ago in New York at NYU. He had a show there and he came and spoke. If you've ever seen his book, The Americans, it is a fabulous book of what America was to him because he was a foreigner when he came here. He came from Switzerland. And I felt the same kind of thing. The fact that I was a foreigner going into Cuba and traveling around the island and photographing people and places and events similar to what Robert Frank did. Now, Mm -hmm. but let me just say that I'm not Robert Frank. You know, there's just one Robert Frank. But it was his inspiration in his book that inspired me to go through my photographs, 10,000 photographs probably in the 10 years or 8 years, and pick 80 of them, which was not an easy task to do. What can you say about the photos that actually spoke to you that made the cut for your book? I would say it's the, the grace 
and the spirituality of the images and the people and the realness of it. They're real. These are real people. If you've seen my book, you might have noticed the lack of automobiles in the book. And most people, when they think of Cuba, they think of the 1950s American cars all over the place. And that's true. But I, I left them out because that's what everybody thinks Cuba is. And for me, that's not what Cuba is. Cuba is about the people, about their generosity, about their spirit, about their grace, about their closeness with family, fathers and sons and fathers and daughters traveling back and forth to school. You just don't see that in uh, other countries. You know, I did go through your book, and I absorbed every single shot. Your images are incredibly powerful. They spoke to me. But... What surprised me is how intimate some of the moments you captured were in private settings. And I know when you travel under a cultural exchange visa, you're generally limited by the approved itinerary. How are you able to gain such access to these people and the places that you shot? The answer is just what you had said. It was a people-to-people cultural exchange. There's nothing more people-to-people than exactly what I did in my book, where I was invited into their homes and I photographed them, or I was at events where they were and I photographed. I I think that's what it was all about, and that's what really drove me to do the book, was what I did and how I did it. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We are speaking to photographer Jay Selden about his photo book, The Cubans, which gives the viewers an authentic glimpse into the life of the Cuban people. One of the photos that I really loved, and it really made me smile, was the superhero. What was his backstory? This this lovely old man dressed in kind of a Superman's costume. Right. That was in a place called Baracoa. It's one of the furthest eastern spots on Cuba. And when I got to Baracoa, The first thing I noticed about Baracoa was the low-level housing, one or two levels, that's about it. But they were all painted in 50s colors, and nothing has been retouched since they were painted. So to me, Baracoa was the quintessential Cuban town. Now, I was there for about um, three days, maybe, three or four days, Mm. and I had noticed him two or three times while I traveled through the town and its uh, environs. And I, you know, he was in this outfit. And it was every day that I saw him, he was in this outfit. And here it was the last day, and I'm thinking to myself, where is he? You know, I didn't photograph him, and I would really love to get a picture of him. And it was the last day, and uh, my group was boarding our little bus to move on to our next location. And there he was. He just kind of popped up. We were on what they call the Malecon in Baracoa, and he just stood on the little seawall there. I just jumped off the bus, (laughs) got the shot. You know, it was a one-shot deal, and then I moved on, and then he moved on. So I don't have a backstory on him other than the fact that, you know, he was spirited. Who are some of the more memorable people that you shot One of my favorite shots is the two sisters learning to fence. And the gentleman in the background of the photo is their instructor. And 
just the way he has posed himself and poised himself, he, it, the humbleness of him just kind of comes out in the photograph while the intensity of the two young girls learning to fence. Mm-hmm. And what I did find out was that he was an Olympic trainer for fencing a number of years ago. So uh, it was very interesting to have that shot. That's one of the shots that stands out for me. Another one that I really enjoy is the first photo in the book that's on the right-hand page, because almost 99% of the photos are on the right-hand page. Only the first photo and the last photo are not. But it's a photo of people waiting at the airport for their loved ones, their friends that were going to come in from Miami. Most of the people had some word that somebody was coming. Now, when they were coming, they really don't know because Internet is not available like it is for us. At any given moment, you could track somebody here in the United States. In Cuba, that cannot happen. So people come to the airport and they wait. So the photograph, for me, is such a great image of what Cuba is all about, which is just waiting. They're waiting for something could be ironic to think that they're also waiting for their freedom too for all you know remember they're behind a a kind of um, a fence a metal fence so it looks ominous and great and if you look at the photo you'll see some faces a woman who has spotted someone she uh, recognizes because she's got a big smile on her face but there are many of the people are disappointed because they don't see any of their loved ones or their friends. The Cubans, a photo book by Jay Selden, offers some powerful and intimate imagery of Cuban people in their everyday life. This book is available on Amazon, and we have a direct link to the store page on our website, worldfootprints.com. Listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Coming up, we will continue our conversation with photographer Jay Selden and learn about what everyday life is like on the island of Cuba. Then we will get a glimpse into the hospitality and other gems that await visitors on the island of Taiwan. Travel journalist Bijan Bain will share what Detroit and adjacent mid Michigan cities have to offer to travelers who want to experience the rebirth of the Big D and Michigan's unique history. If you want more travel experiences beyond this radio show, we invite you to visit our website, worldfootprints.com, where you can peruse our library of radio shows, articles, and more. You can also find links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
see through some of the powerful images in photographer Jay Selden's book, The Cubans, that he didn't need a face to describe a person, and he only used photographs and not words to tell their stories. One of the more striking photos uh, for me was the Jesus and Fidel photo. In my opinion, two very polar opposite people. And you see that in many of the homes, photographs of Jesus and Fidel. And if you notice, that was one of the very, if not the only photo, that doesn't really have a person in the photo. But the photo is about that person or that family, their home, because mm-hmm. that's, they, that's where they live. But the whole point was that there is this strange relationship between Jesus and Fidel in people's homes. So is Christianity prevalent throughout Cuba? I would say no. Most people are non-religious. If they are going to be religious, they're going to in, in incorporate Yorba or Santeria into their practice as a religious form. The Catholic Church, in many instances, shares the religious rites of rituals of Santeria and Yorba in their churches because they couldn't exist on their own. Remember, most of the Afro-Cubans, when they came from Africa, brought their own kind of religion or their spirituality, and that kept them for all these centuries going, and it continues today in the churches and in the streets of Cuba. Now, having lived in Russia for a short time, I'm familiar with the May Day holiday, uh, May 1st, which is generally Russia's version of Labor Day. And I noticed a shot of a poster that you took from Revolution Plaza that actually had a handout stretched, and the poster itself is asking President Obama to give me five. What is the meaning behind that poster? You know how we all say, give me a high five, and that that's a greeting, that's a hello, you agree with people, you know, whatever they were saying or talking, you say, hey, give me five, and you had a high five. Right. You notice that the hand was on the bottom. It wasn't about that. In the United States, right around that time, or a little earlier than that, there was a lot of discussion going about the five gentlemen that were incarcerated in Miami for the last 20 years. Ah. Incarcerated on trumped-up charges. And the Cuban people wanted these men back. Now, by the time that that was photographed, and even with that poster, give me the five back, two of the men had already been returned, but there were still three left in the jails. But they looked at them as a band of brothers, and they were five no matter who was left in there. And it wasn't until December 17th, 2014, Obama and Raul uh, got together and made this great pact that they have now. Mm-hmm. And on that day, all of those men were released, the remaining three, as was Alan Gross that was being held by the Cubans. And mm-hmm. he was to the U.S. So that was the, the deal that they both made. What were some of your preconceived notions about Cuba before you first landed on the island, and how has that changed for you? One, that it was forbidden. Two, it was a political disaster. Three, it was very poor. All of those things are true. It is a political disaster. It is very poor, and it is forbidden to some degree for U.S. citizens. When I visit Cuba... I go there as a visitor. I 
do not go there as a tourist. Tourists have freedoms to go to the beaches, hang out, do whatever they want to do. Americans are not allowed to do that. Americans have to follow a set of rules and regulations and are really just considered visitors. This is World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We are talking to photographer Jay Selden about his photo book, The Cubans, and how his works of art expose stories of survival, love, and even hope in the face of an uncertain future. So what did you learn about Americans on your uh, first visits there? Well, one, I found that the Cuban people love American people. When they see Americans, and I have to say this about a lot of developing countries, when Americans show up to a developing country, the people from that country get a sense of hope. Americans just don't show up. They are generous when they come. So, you know, if I'm there, I'm respectful to a group of people. I'll leave a gratuity, you know, from uh, a dinner for the waiters and stuff like that. And Americans, I feel, are just very generous, and I think most Cubans would say the same thing. And they're, they're generous in their time. They're generous in their consideration of them. I enjoy listening to them. I enjoy understanding their culture. Mm-hmm. Um, i not so sure I would say that about a lot of other foreign visitors who are more interested in things for themselves. And I don't think Americans, at least... The Americans I've traveled with have ever thought like that. Now, when you travel on these cultural exchange visits through people to people, are you able to use American dollars on the island, or is that still forbidden? Even that's even? still forbidden. Uh, the money the the money that we use is something called the converted peso, better known as the cook C U C. That's how it's spelled, um, and the cook is a set price. Um, it's uh, tourist dollars. It is now uh, the standard bearer for all tourism. So if you are French or Spanish or American, you have to change your money into their tourist dollars. My belief is that the tourist dollars have no world backing in the banks. It's not banked by platinum. It's not banked by gold. It's not backed by anything. So it's just a piece of paper, unlike, you know, everyone else's currency that are backed by some sort of important mineral or uh, gold standard or something like that. Now, back to your book, you shot in black and white. All of your photos are in black and white. Why did you choose black and white versus colored photos? For me, color is about the clothing you wear. What color is your shirt? What color are your pants? And people notice that. That's one of the first things they notice is the color of something. Black and white is a lack of all that color. And it makes you look into the photograph to look at all parts of it because there's nothing that's going to jump out at you with black and white. They're all 256 tones of gray. That's what you're looking at as opposed to billions of different color combinations that you could have. Mm -hmm. So for me, black and white is very emotional and very dramatic. What do you hope to share through the powerful images in your book? What do you want people to take away after they flip through the pages of your images, in my case, over and over again? Thanks for looking at it over and over again. I really appreciate that. I think that people should walk away with a good feeling that these are righteous people, they're family people, 
They have a lot of grace and spirituality about them, and uh, they're just real. There's nothing that's not real about the images in the book, and I hope people walk away seeing Cubans as they really are. Jay Seldon's photographs in the Cubans reveal a society beyond the cliches and offers a vicarious journey for the viewer. Visit this show page at worldfootprints.com for a link to the book's Amazon page and Jay Seldon's website. In this destination spotlight, Carrie Wynn from Taiwan Tourism shines a spotlight on the small Asian island from the Adventure Travel Show. Taiwan is one of four Asian tigers, a term that references the highly developed and free market economies of Hong Kong, Singapore, South Korea, and Taiwan. Hello, everyone. I'm Carrie Wynn. Uh, Taiwan is the heart of Asia, so uh, we are surrounded by China, um, Korea, Japan, Philippines, and Vietnam. So if you ever go to those cities, Taiwan is your best uh, stopover or destination. Our pal- uh, National Palace Museum is very famous. We have uh, a quite good collection of Chinese antique. Um, that's uh, uh, seeing um, um, called the 10th tenth, the tenth best museum in the world. Taiwanese people are very friendly and they come from uh, everywhere uh, from Asia. We are influenced by Japanese culture and we we also um, take over some Chinese cultures. Uh, It reflects on our um, custom, our food and our uh, lifestyle as well. And Taiwan is Taiwan is not just a small island. We are small, but we got everything. Uh, no matter what you like, you like surfing, we got beach, beautiful beaches. If you like hiking, you like adventure, we have high mountains. So uh, we have very beautiful scenery. Well, welcome everyone to come over to see this. You're welcome. trip to Michigan, travel journalist Bajan Bain explored Detroit and saw firsthand the explosion of growth and revitalization. He also journeyed to port cities along the Michigan coastline and uncovered little-known maritime history. Because Detroit is an emerging tourist destination, we asked Bajan why he decided to return and what he'd hoped to find. Well, it was time. I was a little overdue for having seen Detroit, which I've heard on cable news and heard people that are native, varying degrees of comeback stories in terms of uh, startups and the economy and certain sectors of the city. And I was interested in that as well as the opportunity to see some places that are more like vacation weekend sites. What areas in Michigan did you actually see on your trip? I stayed in Detroit a couple of nights and I stayed right in town. So I got to see some of these uh, new businesses that I spoke of, and also some of the uh, properties that are owned by the uh, gentleman who owns the Cleveland Cavaliers. So I saw a little bit about what people are talking about when they talk about revitalization or development, uh, positively and maybe negatively if you're uh, 
a native. Uh, it depends on whether it's benefited you or not. And so I was there two nights before departing for places that were more like maritime uh, locations, such as Port Huron and Port Austin, uh, places like that, where my interests were more to see places that had a history in terms of the lighthouses and things like that and the boating and the shipping that went on in the Great Lakes. What was your sense about Detroit in terms of coming back from your perspective? Those things are always sort of two-edged, as you well know. I know very well that you're both natives. And when I hear things like that, especially when I'm learning about businesses and things of that nature, uh, from those who either own them or who in some cases are natives, but in other cases aren't necessarily natives, but at least they have employed people that have lived there all along. Uh, there's two sides to every coin, and because when I toured, I'll just give you an example. When I went to the watch factory and shop Shinola, it was great to hear some people that were talking on the floor or that came in to speak that actually work in, in the factory and manufacture the watches or sell them, that they were natives. So if you're benefiting from the comeback and you were there through the hard times, that's great to see. Um, I, I toured the little plant. A lot of these uh, buildings, as you, as you know, are renovated former warehouses that have been repurposed. So I, I toured the plant where they make this coat that can be used by homeless people to wrap around themselves and sleep in if they're sleeping on a grate or on a ground or on a bench or what have you. But you can also wear it like a coat when you're standing and moving about. And it was designed there actually in the little uh, factory where I met some of the uh, workers. And things like that are great to see, uh, new restaurants and things like that, little corridors of Detroit that are coming back. But I don't like to romanticize or, or look at those things as an outsider without some reservation as to who's being helped and who might be excluded from some of that rebirth. What I took away from it, it's great to hear just positive things and that the city is, has an association with something positive in general and not necessarily what you heard 10 or 15 years ago. Was that a surprise for you? I mean, did you go to Detroit with a certain set of expectations that were shattered? No. I mean, I went having seen things, you know, with Anthony Bourdain and with CNN specials and with things on the network news the last four or five years about renaissance and newness. But I had been there a little bit before a trip to uh, Windsor, and I think you guys were along on my uh, when we went to Carabana because as you know that was several years ago so I actually expected to see change but I, I'm not coming from it with much of a frame of reference for previous Detroit so I mean we're talking about decades and decades of um, loss and decades and decades of downturn what helped me was being able to see certain sections of the city, and I could just physically see even not having much background. You could tell by the ages of some of the houses and the ages of some of the apartments that the sections were relatively old, like they might have been built in the 30s and 40s. And when you saw a block or two that were all businesses, 
or when you saw that apartments were not necessarily boarded up or were inhabited, I could tell just from living in places like D.C. and Baltimore and Boston, just from the age of the buildings, that they probably were not places that people were doing that well and economically even maybe 10 or 15 years ago. So I did come expecting to see uh, a lot of change because I've been hearing about change for quite some time. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're talking to travel journalist Bajan Bain about Detroit and mid-Michigan as a tourism destination. So what about from the perspective of the tourism industry, what types of things did they show you on this particular trip that may have intrigued you a little bit more about the prospect of Detroit as a tourism product? Some of what I felt positive and enthusiastic about was that there was a lot of relatively new dining and they were, I wouldn't say upscale dining, I would say trendy dining or hipster dining. And that can be good to see if, if you have the money to dine there, if you, if you live there all year round. But for tourism, that was great. Downtown, near GM and things like that in the theater, this is what I noticed, Ian and Tanya. When I saw people that were going to and from and going to work and things like that, that probably lived there all of their lives, people looked more upbeat. And people's facial expressions and their body language and the amount of people on the street was different than when we than we were there when we were there before we went to Windsor and Chatham. People seemed more a part of something that is making people feel better. That was when I was in places that were not necessarily on any particular tour. It's just a matter of observing how people are going about and how they seem and how they look. That's something I noticed, but that was more downtown. And outside of downtown, what areas kind of struck you as great tourism-type areas? Well, I felt like if a person were dining, for business, of course, Cass Quarter, and, and I think it would be interesting for anybody, no matter what your interests are, to tour Shinola, just because the products are so innovative, the craftsmanship, the creativity, and the backstory. It's just something that that you have to see in person. I mean, everybody from former President Clinton, he wears those watches. It's a really nice little story that's easy to get your head around. And other products beyond the watches, they make sports products and vintage basketballs and footballs and bags and bicycles and things of that nature. That was fun. Greektown, I saw some nightlife, and that reminded me of some other cities in the Midwest that have sort of little sections of town where you can do your dining, there's live music, movies, and things of that nature. So I thought that even for a first-timer, that's a nice place to hang out. We spoke about Henry Ford Museum. You seem very attracted to the Henry Ford Museum as well. Yeah, that's a must-stop. I mean, if you're a person that has any sense of nostalgia, trivia, Americana, history buff, even if you're not so much a history buff, but you have certain aspects of manufacturing or the the automobile history or civil rights history that appeal to you. One would really be well served if you tour Henry Ford and Greenfield Village because you're going to see things that you might expect to see, but you're also going to see some things that you have no idea that are there because they've, uh, in Greenfield Village in particular, They've moved the homes of famous Americans, in some cases, their birth homes, to Greenfield Village so that you can see what type of house 
a Thomas Edison lived in and people of that nature. And people say, well, what would a person like that have to do with Ford? Well, inventor and inventor, innovator and innovator, and, and they were admirers of one another and contemporaries. And so that was interesting. And, of course, the museum, which houses everything in the main building from the bus that Detroit or Rosa Parks sat on and, and famously in Montgomery to the going back to President Kennedy, the Lincoln in which he was assassinated in 1963. It's just a rich, well-planned, well-thought-out place where there's something for everybody. In our closing moments here, I want to get a chance to talk about uh, outstate Michigan, uh, beyond southeastern Michigan, and your visit to Port Huron, which is probably best known as the place that the Port Huron to Mackinac race starts. Tell us what you experienced there. Well, in Port Huron... um, The maritime story is principal, and that entails a visit to the lighthouse. And what you really will get there is an appreciation for the significance of the lighthouses. I think even more significant, a lot of Americans, when they think of a lighthouse, they think of South Carolina or they think of the Outer Banks or they think of northern Florida. But those lighthouses are more for an ocean, you know, and they're, not for as much commerce, I think. I think when you think about the Great Lakes and you think about the amount of goods that came in through the country, in some cases through Canada, these are very pivotal jobs in terms of the safeness of the harbor and the lighting, the lightkeeper's job, and the men that would supply the port and do things on the smaller boats. I went to a maritime museum. That was a great visit. And in the maritime museum there, you actually see the deck of the uh, ship that wrecked the uh, Edmund Fitzgerald, and you're able to hear the telephone calls back and forth between the Coast Guard and the people that they were hoping would be able to find the vessel but never did. Bijan, thank you. Um, we're happy that you uh, spent some time in uh, my home state and uh, enjoyed yourself, and we thank you for joining us. Well, it's always great to uh, see things positive. We have a lot of news this year about Michigan, which is, uh, again, giving Americans a sense of something that is not the greatest story in the world. And it's just wonderful to see the people in Michigan and from outside of Michigan are able to go to places which are driving distance and enjoy their weekends in nature and in uh, places that, in some sense, haven't changed for hundreds of years in a good way. To learn more about Detroit's revitalization and tourist districts, as well as some of the attractions mentioned during this broadcast, visit worldfootprints.com for relevant links. positive stories about Detroit and you know Detroit has a personal meaning to both you and I but particularly me I still have family there my formative years were spent in the city up until the revitalization period it's broken my heart to travel back to Detroit and see the state of the city and so it just brought me a lot of joy to hear Bijan kind of echo what we've known what's going on for some time. 
When I think about Detroit, I think of the people that I got to know while working in that city, and for me, that's really what made Detroit special to me were the people and that fighting spirit there. And you know, the city has had hard times for a long time, and we can't kid ourselves about that. And it has a long ways to go. It is a shell of what it used to be, and I believe Detroit will be great again. And I think it will be great. Because of the people, first and foremost, not because of M1 Rail or a brand new Detroit Red Wings Arena or buildings, but it's the people there. It's that same spirit that led to great innovation. It's the same spirit that led to Motown music and is leading to this revival that we're seeing at the top and at the bottom as we see innovators go into neighborhoods, bringing art, bringing community farming, and all of these things that. We haven't seen in any place, let alone Detroit, ever. And you know, I, I'd say too that, and I say this in a loving way, the people are too ornery to fail. <laughs> you know, as Judge Joe Brown said to me when he met me, and and I told him I'm from Detroit, and <laughs> he said, "Oh, you Detroit women, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. we're too ornery to fail." Yeah. Um, y- uh, listening to Nails Gibbons' interview on Ireland and then just really enjoying that conversation with him, I'm reminded, dear, of how many stories we did not uncover when we were there. And we do have an invitation to return to Ireland. There are so many stories, like the monastic history. Who would have thunk in Ireland there's that rich history, cultural history within it, its border? And there's other, you know, stories about some of the natural resources that they've found, like Craig Caves, and lots of wonderful backstories that I'm looking forward to uncovering. And I remember our other interview with Ireland, they talked about the romanticism of going back and discovering your roots. And there's something very spiritual for me about being on Ireland, uh, I don't know what it is. There's just a wonderful, beautiful energy. And Ireland is another one of my happy places. I don't know if that it holds the same uh, feeling for you. It does, and I'm looking forward to getting back to uh, Ireland as well. And as we think about people and uh, the importance of people in, in Jay Seldon's book, The Cubans, uh, when he talks about Cuba, he talks about it from the perspective of the people, not the iconic things, whether it's the classic American cars or other aspects, the architecture, but he talks about the people. And again, that's the thing that I think really ties everything together with this week's show. And when I think about Cuba, and I can neither admit nor deny my travels there, but Jay's book brings out a very soulful element. And, you know, how I say beautiful things make me cry. There are some photographs in his book that were so beautiful, they really touched my core. Our inspirational travel quote this week comes from Pico Ayer. We travel initially to lose ourselves, and we travel next to find ourselves. We travel to open our hearts and eyes and learn more about the world than our newspapers will accommodate. We travel to bring what little we can in our ignorance and knowledge to those parts of the globe whose riches are differently dispersed. 
and we travel in essence to become young fools again, to slow time down and get taken in, and to fall in love once more. Thank you guys so much for spending time with us. We are Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to sharing another amazing journey with you on World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com you'll find an archive of past broadcasts travel news, reviews, and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn, and live it at worldfootprints.com.